following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning we are starting a brand new series. It's called Your Church, as in Y-O-U-R-E, Church, as in U-R-E, Church. So uh, the reason I chose that title is because I have conversations with people and what I've, what I've noticed is that a lot of Christians, when they talk about the church, they talk about the church in the third person. You notice this? And, and I, I do it sometimes as well and, and it's easy to fall into that way of thinking. So we talk about the church should do this or the church is like this or why doesn't the church do that? And when we say those things, we're, we're kind of betraying a view of what the church is, that it's something separate to us, that I'm here and the church is kind of over there somewhere and I may attend the church or I may get involved in the church and I may engage with the church, but it's not fundamentally me, it's not who I am. And through this series, if nothing else, I want to emphasize this reality from Scripture that we are the church, that we are together the church. It's not some other place. It's not somewhere else. It's not just me and the elders. It's not just the church leaders. We are the church. And I know you know this, many of you, but I don't think for a lot of us it's really become our reality, our lived experience that we are together equally and fully part of the church just by definition that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of the church. Even if you don't attend a church, you are by definition part of God's church and God calls us to express our identity as a church by living out the vision that Jesus has for his church and we're going to talk about what that is. So let me just start by telling you, sharing with you a little bit of my story. Uh, after I graduated from AUT, I spent two and a half years working in a public relations agency and it was, it was a good job and it was the start of, of what could have been a great career. But... Um, it wasn't to be because during those two and a half years, God really, I think, shifted my heart away from the corporate world that I was in towards pastoral ministry and placed in me a desire to base my vocation in the church. I was already volunteering in a church, but God just sowed the seed of, of desire to, to, to give my life, really, to serving the church in the form of, of pastoring and pastoral ministry. And a number of things happened during that time that kind of fueled that fire for me and led me in that direction and, and eventually led to me uh, coming on staff here and taking a position here at Shaw Community Church. One of them, randomly enough, was a series of messages that I was listening to by Bill Hybels. He's a pastor in the States. And I remember listening to these, they were cassette tapes, remember those? Cassette tapes. And I was listening to them in my car, driving around, and uh, I don't remember much of what he said, but there was one message where he talked about the church and talked about the local church. And even in that message, I can't remember a lot of the details, but I just remember he kept on coming back to this one refrain. He kept on saying, there's nothing like the church. And then he'd go and tell another story, and he'd come back again. There's nothing like the church. And it just grabbed hold of my heart. It just captured me, and God lit a fire in me with that. Just a love for the beauty and the power and the potential of the local church. And as I was preparing this message and reflecting back on that time in my life, I went back to one of Bill Hybel's books uh, where he talks about this. It's not this, exactly the same as what he said in the message, but I just want to read you this, this extract of one of his books because really for me, this is part of my journey and it's part of what, what's led me here um, and to, to do what I'm doing as part of this community. And this is what he says in his book, Courageous Leadership. There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. 
Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. And really for me, that's a big part of why I keep on getting up here, Sunday after Sunday, keep on talking to you, uh, love being among you and ministering and, and shepherding and, and marrying you and burying you and taking baby dedications and all of the other things that pastors do, you know, because, this, because I love the church. I love the local church. And I, and I see some of its beauty and its potential and its, its power. But if you look at that quote again, the big caveat in that quote is the first sentence. There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. And we've all seen times when the church is not working right. And it, it's great to talk about the beauty and the power of the church, but there, we all know the church has a dark side. Right? That the church is a mixed bag. That the church is like a ninja. It's got a hundred ways to kill you. you know? It's just endlessly creative in being able to hurt and wound people as well as be an incredible force for good. And you see that. I mean, if you put, your, put yourself in the shoes of your non-Christian friends and neighbors and how they see the church, probably at best they would see the church as an outdated, antiquated relic of the past that's completely irrelevant in modern culture, and at worst a perpetrator of great violence and abuse. And to be honest, you can't argue with a lot of that. You can't argue with history. You can't argue with the fact that too many times the church has been on the wrong side of history. That leaders and deacons and pastors and elders in the church were part of the leadership of the KKK in America. That part of the church was an organ of the state in Nazi Germany. That a denomination in the church was at the forefront of apartheid in South Africa. That the church was complicit in the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Time and time and time again, the church has found itself on the wrong side of history. And it has been complicit in some of the worst humanitarian abuses in history. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, there's always another side to that story. Because as much as the church can be an immense force for evil, it has also been an immense force for good. Just look at the Salvation Army, the legacy of humanitarian work around the world. Look at the confessing church that arose in Nazi Germany as an opposition to the Nazi regime in a different way. You know, Bonhoeffer, those guys, a different way of being human and being Christians. Look at CAP that we're getting involved in, organization that works in and through local churches around the world to show the love of Jesus to people in their communities. The church is such a mixed bag. It's a force for immense good. It's a force for immense harm. And really, that shouldn't surprise us because the church is made up of people like us, and we're mixed bags, aren't we? I mean, we, it runs right through the heart of every one of us that we can, we're capable of great good and great evil, and half the time it's simultaneous. We're such a mixed bag, so when people like us get together, the church is going to be a mixed bag as well. But I just want to make one statement this morning, one simple statement to kick off this series, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. The truest thing that can be said about the church from Scripture is that Jesus loves the church. 
that it's really not about me or you and what we think of the church, what experiences we've had and how relevant or otherwise we think the church is. What really matters is that Jesus loves the church. And if we love Jesus, then we ought to love what Jesus loves. And it's pretty clear that Jesus loves his church. One of the central metaphors in the Bible to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church is the relationship between a bride and groom. Jesus is the groom, and we, the church, and and here I'm in church, big C, worldwide historic community of God's people, we, the church, are the bride of Christ. It's a a beautiful image, and I want to read the the part of the Bible that unpacks this metaphor most explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick open to that. Just a few verses, though, just two or three verses from Ephesians 5. And what's interesting about this passage is that as Paul talks about the church, really what he's talking about at this point in the letter to the Ephesians, he's talking about marriage. He's talking about the relationship between husbands and wives. And yet, he can't even talk about marriage without slipping into talking about Christ and the church because those two things are so interwoven. So he oscillates in this passage between talking about husbands and wives and then Christ and the church, and they weave in and out of one another. So in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. It's a stunning picture of the church. I love the way that Paul, he doesn't say Christ loved individuals. He doesn't say Christ loved people or even humanity or even the world. He could have said any of those things but he specifically chooses his words carefully and he says Christ loved the church. That we're, see, we're in an individualistic culture that teaches us to prioritize the individual. So we think God's desire is just to save a bunch of disparate individuals. But Jesus' desire from the beginning of time has been to redeem a community, has been to save a community. God's desire is not just to save individuals, to save a collection of people, but to form a community, to call out a community. That's what the word church means, called out ones. That Greek word, ecclesia, church, to be called out of the world, to be called out of the kingdom of the world, called into a set-apart, dedicated community for God's own pleasure and God's own blessing and God's own possession. That's what the church is. This has been God's desire all along. That's why he called Abraham, as Grant talked to us about last week, because he said to Abraham, through you, I'll create what? A people. A a group, a community of blessing. And that's why he called Israel as a community, as a nation that would bear his name. That's why he sent Jesus to form a community around himself of which he was the cornerstone. That's why he calls the church because God's desire is to claim a people, to claim a community for himself. And not just so that he would have a vertical relationship with us, but that so as a church, we would reflect God's love and life and hope and healing out to the world. The church is incredibly central to the redemptive work that God is currently doing on planet Earth. It's the central way in which God is now showing His image to the world, moving out with life and with healing and with wholeness to other people. The church is unbelievably precious to Jesus, and it's incredibly central in God's redemptive story. 
Here's what one writer writes about the church. She's a mystery, isn't she? Still going after all this time. After the Crusades and the Inquisition and Christian cable television, still going. And there continue to be people like me who believe she's one of the best ideas ever. In spite of all the way she has veered off track. In spite of all the people who have actually turned away from God because of what they experienced in church. I'm starting to realize why. The church is like a double-edged sword. When it's good, when it's on, when it's right, it's like nothing on earth. A group of people committed to selflessly serving and living, loving the world around them, great. But when it's bad, all that potential gets turned the other way. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. Sometimes in the same week, sometimes in the same day. Now, the guy that wrote that is a guy named Rob Bell. And he was a pastor in the States in Michigan, a big church in Michigan. And this quote comes from the first book that he wrote called Velvet Elvis. And then he got himself in a whole lot of trouble because he wrote a book which, among other things, talked about hell uh, later on. And that book caused a whole lot of controversy, which we're not going to get into. And I think some of the criticism that he received was valid in and of itself. But some of it, it's fair to say, was delivered in a way that was not particularly kind. Some of it was delivered in a way that was not gracious and was not really fitting of Christians and of the church. And soon after that, Rob Bell left his church in Michigan and he moved to California, as you do. And uh, these days, he's, kind of, he's teaching seminars and he's got a TV show going on and he doesn't really seem to be connected to much of a church at all. I read an interview with him recently where he was asked this question about what he now thinks of the church and whether he's currently involved in any kind of church. And here's what he said. We have a little tribe of friends. We have a group that we're journeying with. There's no building. We're churching all the time. It's more of a verb for us. Churches can be places that help people grow and help people connect with others and help people connect with the great issues of our day. They can also be toxic black holes of despair. <laughs> it sounds like a guy who's been burned. And, you know... I'm kind of reading between the lines there, but I wonder whether part of what's happened to Rob Bell is that he's seen and he's experienced exactly what he wrote about in that first quote. If you put that back on screen for a minute, just that earlier quote, he talks about the church being a double-edged sword. And, and I think whatever else you want to say about Rob Bell, he's, he's experienced both those sides of the church. He's experienced the highest highs and probably the lowest lows of the church. He's seen the church at its best and he's seen the church at its worst. He's kind of lived that reality in his own life. And that's true for us. That's true for each of us. I mean, we can all think of moments when we've been proud of the church, right? This church or another church or just that church, whatever, however you want to think about it. We've had those moments where we've loved being part of the church and we've seen God bless and we've seen Him move and we've seen things happen and we feel like this is the church. And then we've had those moments when we feel like, what's the point? And this is this is rubbish and you're tempted to walk away and you just feel like it's falling apart and you're frustrated. And we've, we've had those. We see the way the church is a double-edged sword. It's a mixed bag. And I think the reason for that comes back to these verses in Ephesians 5. I think there's a little truth in here that's so important, a little distinction, subtle little distinction, but explains so much about why the church is like it is. Just come back again to verse 25 in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her 
holy. Now that phrase, to make her holy, is in the perfect tense. What that means is it's a completed action. That's why some of your translations say, having made her holy. It's something that's already done. It's a completed action. This describes the present state of the church on the basis of what Jesus has done. Christ has already died for the church and he has already made her holy. So everything now that flows in verse 26 describes the present state of the church. Having made her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That's who we are in the present. That's the present state of the church. We have been made holy in the sense that we've been set apart in the sense that we're a forgiven people, in the sense that we're a freed people, that we're in relationship with God, that we stand individually as a community in right relationship with God now through Jesus Christ. We've been washed, we've been freed, we've been cleansed. In that sense, we are holy. That's the present state of the church. But there's a big shift then. In verse 27, Paul shifts to the future. And what he describes in verse 27 is the reality of what's going to happen when he returns. He says in verse 27, And to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So now he's thinking of the day when he returns, and you can read this in Revelation 19, by the way. This beautiful picture of the wedding supper of the Lamb, and and the bride of Christ is presented to her groom, the ceremony between Christ and his church. But that's all sitting out there in the future when Jesus returns, when the church will finally be made radiant and pure and spotless and holy. You notice he uses that word again uses the word holy twice, once in verse 26, once in verse 27. So the church has these two states of holiness. There's the present holiness of the church in which we are set apart for Christ. But there's the future holiness of the church in which we will be fully and finally and completely holy and sinless without a trace of the brokenness that's in the church in the present. So this, I think, explains a lot of the problem that we experience in the present because a lot of Christians come into churches like this one and they sit here and you participate in church life and you get into this thing and all the while you've got a verse 27 church in your head. You've got a verse 27 idealized, perfect, radiant, pure, hot. You know, I was going to say hot. That's not the right word, is it? Uh, Not for this metaphor. Blameless bride of Christ. You know, you've got this picture in your head of what the church can be, and that in itself is not wrong, but you're kind of using that as an expectation to place on the church in the present when we are not yet a verse 27 church. We're a verse 26 church. Every church is a verse 26 church. We're still on the road to verse 27. In the redemptive work of God, we're not at verse 27 yet. That's going to happen when Jesus returns. And when we live with that Verse 27, as a present expectation, we are absolutely going to be disappointed because the church will never live up to that. Because the church is a forgiven community, but she's not yet a radiant church. She's holy, but she's not yet fully holy. She's cleansed and washed by water and the Word, but she's not yet unblemished, spotless, and perfect. She's just not. And we've got to reconcile ourselves to this reality that in the present, the church is only up to verse 26. I'm not trying to excuse anything in the church. We we should be reaching forward. We should be moving forward. We should be maturing. We should be pursuing holiness. Absolutely. We've just got to accept that we're not there yet, that we are moving from one state of holiness to the next. And inevitably, in the present church, there will be brokenness. What that means is that your experience in this church 
and be the same wherever you go. Your experience in this church will be a mixed bag. It'll be a mixed bag. There's going to be times of great joy, times when you sense the Spirit's presence, times when things are humming and clicking and working right. And there's going to be the other times. It's going to be the times of frustration. It's going to be times of annoyance. It's going to be times of disappointment. And honestly, there's going to be times when you get hurt. It's virtually impossible for this many people to exist in proximity to one another and not get hurt. Because we are sinful people. There's going to be times that you get hurt by the church, or let's be honest, by people in the church. And there's going to be times you hurt other people. I'm not excusing, I'm not telling you to. But there's just going to be times when it may have already happened. You may not even be aware of it. And I will tell you this honestly, that this starts with me. You know, you need to hear this, especially those of you that are new to the church this year, that have just started on this journey with us, and you're thinking, what on earth is this, you know? This is for a guy who had a career in public relations. It's not exactly the most positive view of the church here. But, you know, you, you need to just be aware that I am this church's chief of sinners. You know, really, that's, I'm, that's not a sort of false humility, look at me. I, I'm honest, you know, I am this church's chief of sinners. Sooner or later, if you stick around in this church, I will disappoint you. I guarantee, if it hasn't happened yet, just wait your turn. <laughs> it's coming. 2015 could be your year. <laughs> Ask around, you know. I mean, I will. I will let you down. I will disappoint you and frustrate you. And that, because I'm a broken and flawed and sinful person. And we'll frustrate each other sometimes. We'll tear our hair out about each other. This is just going to happen. And, and what I'd suggest is that we give up our idealized picture of what we think the church should be and embrace the messiness and the ugliness and the brokenness of what the church is and jump in and try and make it the best it can be. That's what I would suggest that we do. Because the church is a mess. She's a mess. But she's a beautiful mess. She's the mess for which Jesus died. She's the mess which is the bride of Christ. And she's made up of a whole lot of messes like me. Beautiful but broken, sinful but grace-filled, spirit-filled by the grace of God, but stumbling forward and failing and always trying but never quite getting there. Messes. That's who we are as a church. And we've got to reconcile ourselves to that and embrace all of the tension and the ambiguity and the messiness and the brokenness of the church. That's who she is, and that's the church that Christ died for. He loves the church even in the present, not just the church as she's going to be. He loves the church now. He loves the church right now, and he calls us to love the church too. And I think ironically, I don't mean to make light of it here, but I think ironically, in a funny way, because the church is so imperfect, it gives us so many opportunities to pursue holiness in our lives. I mean, where else in the church are you going to find so many opportunities to forgive people? It's just brilliant. You know, you're gonna, there's going to be so many times when you're going to get to practice forgiveness because there's going to be people who need forgiving. And you're going to have to ask for forgiveness at times too. So you're going to have an opportunity to practice humility. Where else but the church will we have the opportunity? It's like a crucible of holiness precisely because the church is not yet fully holy. It gives us an opportunity to outwork holiness and character by jumping into something that is far from perfect. And I learned this when I was a teenager. I'm still learning this, but one experience I can think of when I was a teenager, I was leading a beach mission. 
I was signed up to lead a beach mission with a, a young woman from our church. And somewhere along the way in the planning process, I don't even know how this happened, but we had a falling out. We just couldn't see eye to eye, didn't agree on something to do with the trip, and we, our relationship just, just broke apart um, as, as leaders. And we didn't really know how to reconcile, and we didn't know how to get the project back on track, and there were people who had signed up to this, and it was pretty messy. And I remember one of the deacons from the church came alongside us and sat down with us and led us through a process of mediation, a process where we each could be heard and where we each had to stop talking long enough to hear the other person and where we figured out our differences and agreed on some things and asked for and received forgiveness and we prayed together. Now, in my life, in church or out of church, I I don't think I'd ever had someone walk me through anything like that. I mean, that's just good for life. That's not just church life. That's, that's how we grow as people. That's the first time anyone had walked me through what it means to have mediation, what it means to have reconciliation, what it means to deal with relationships that come under strain in a healthy way rather than a destructive way. And that was my experience in the church because we walked a certain path and, and, a, and a wiser, older person from the church came in. That was an opportunity for me. If we allow those opportunities to come, they will shape us and they will grow us. I know that it's far easier when you do encounter hurt and when there is conflict and when you do get wounded to pull back and pull away or walk away. But if we sit with this long enough, if we stay around and we enter into the messiness of church, there'll be opportunities here where your character will be shaped and formed in ways it just won't be otherwise. And somehow, in the wisdom of God, that's part of his plan. He's not necessarily asking in the present for a perfect church. He's asking us to figure out what it means to live with one another in a very less than perfect environment and to treat each other well and to stumble forward arm in arm as we pursue holiness together. And Lord willing, there will be many of those moments when we really do catch our breath and say, that's the church. There will be, by God's grace, many of those times when we get glimpses of verse 27 in the present. Catch a little glimpse of the radiant church, the pure church. Some of you got a glimpse of this. Last Christmas, when you showed up to go caroling at the homes of some people in our church that are struggling. 32 of you, I think, showed up. And I know that I don't think there's 32 good singers in this church. So some of you are really putting yourselves out there for this one. But you showed up and you, you went around to these homes and you sung Oh Holy Night and you watched as God melted people's hearts and touched their lives. And you were moved too, weren't you? And those are the times when you find yourself saying, there's nothing like the church. Nothing on earth like the church. And by the grace of God, I pray that in our journey, there's many, many of those times, many of those moments, but there'll be the other kind too. And I'm not meaning to paint a negative view of the church, but I also don't want us just to be here with all kinds of unrealistic and idealistic expectations of what church life is going to be. We need to see. It's messy. It's broken. There'll be the highs and the lows, and that's just part of being the church. But what we know is that Jesus loves the church. And if we love Jesus, we ought to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church. So here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to move from Ephesians into Romans, and we're going to base ourselves in one chapter of Romans, just one chapter for the next six or seven weeks, Romans chapter 12, which paints a beautiful picture of what the church is. It's not a 
picture of a perfect church. Paul's writing that letter to a church, a culturally mixed church with all kinds of issues. But it's a picture of what life in community is as a church and the different facets of what it means to be the body of Christ together, broken but grace-filled. So I'd encourage you to read it before we get there next week, and we're just going to work through it fairly closely because it's a very dense chapter of, of Scripture, just section by section, looking at different aspects of our life together as a church and what this thing called the church is and what it can be. And what we're going to do now as a community is take a meal that we take every Sunday, the meal of communion together, and it reminds us of both these parts of Ephesians 5 that we've been talking about, both the present and the future state of the church. Just listen before you, before you put your stuff away. This is both sides of that coin because communion keeps us focused on the present of the church because we see that the church is saved by the grace of Jesus. We, we drink the bread and wine and we see that we are the recipients of God's incredible grace. We've been made holy. And yet, communion points us forward. Communion reminds us we're still a pilgrim people. We're still a people on a journey. Jesus said, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine with you until I drink it again anew in the kingdom of heaven. One day when Christ returns, we'll be the perfectly holy church. So communion has this power of pulling our heart forward to that day when we, when we share the full banquet with Jesus, when we are there at the wedding supper of the Lamb. The bride is still walking up the aisle. We're still on our way up the aisle. Ceremony hasn't started yet. But one day, that ceremony is going to kick into gear. Christ and His bride will be fully and completely united. So as we travel up the aisle, so to speak, let's eat and drink together with glad hearts that we are part of this body of Christ called the church. Let's pray we'll prepare ourselves for communion. Jesus, our minds are full of all the experiences that we've had in churches over our lives. The good and the bad, the highs and the lows. The people that have come and gone, the times that we've wanted to throw it in, the times we did throw it in, the times we've felt like, this is fantastic. And Jesus, we thank you that, that you see all of that and you see it multiplied out across this entire globe. And down through history, you see all the brokenness of the church, but you see her tremendous beauty. And Jesus, we just remind ourselves, we, we allow you to remind us that you so deeply love your church. Give us that same love, same willingness to love your church, despite her shortcomings and despite the shortcomings in our own lives. God, as we eat and drink together this morning, we want to do that mindful of each other, not in a, not in a cocoon, not just closed off to one another, but mindful that in you, Jesus, there is one body, there is one cup, there is one bread, because we are one people in you. So, Jesus, let this meal pull us together as your people and remind us of the deep unity that we have as a church in you. We pray it in Christ's name. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shore Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.